bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. In late June, the Manitoba Métis Federation made a controversial announcement asserting what they believe is its constitutional right to hunt across the Métis homeland in Canada. So I'm, I'm going to do this story a little bit differently and talk uh, about the history of the Métis people in Canada and their hunting rights, and, and then I'll get, get into unfolding this sort of controversial announcement here. But I think it's prudent that you know, for myself, I, you know, I, I can honestly say I didn't, I didn't fully understand the history of Canada's Métis people. And so I think to do this story justice um, and be fair uh, and give you information to make uh, informed decisions about yourself, what, what you think about um, the announcement, uh, I'm going to go through the history, uh, in a brief format, the history of the Métis people uh, in Canada as, as I've researched and, and learned about it. And, and this is going to lead us over the last five and a quarter centuries in Canada up to this controversial decision about harvesting rights in Canada. So the Métis people of Canada um, are of First Nation and European heritage. So I found an interesting statement uh, that said the Métis identify, sorry, the Métis identity is not simply the result of a dual heritage, but rather a matter of possessing a single cultural heritage of dual origins. And this will kind of come back to play a, a little bit later on in some of the uh, Supreme Court decisions. So the first European contact with Canada's First Peoples was in the 1500s. In 1608, Samuel Champlain established the first European settlement in Canada in the New World, which is today Quebec City. By the 1700s, so, so during that time, during the settlement time, Europeans and First Nations were forming, uh, getting married and forming kinships. And so this, this is where the history of the, the dual um, origins, uh, the, the First Nations and European heritage of the Métis people started was between, you know, the, the, the first contact of the 1500s and around the 1600s when Quebec City, the first established, Canada's first, first settlement was established. So by the 1700s, um, the first small Métis communities uh, were starting to form in the Great Lakes area and they were fur trade settlements. Um, these communities in the Great Lakes area, um, their occupation predated 
the Red River Settlement, which is sort of like the hub of identifying um, the historic ties to the Métis community in Canada is the Red River Settlement in, in Manitoba. But the first Métis community started to arise in the Great Lakes areas in the 1700s. By 1810, the Métis peoples had established themselves as the eminent buffalo hunters uh, in Canada and they were suppliers of various resources uh, including pemmican to the north west company who was occupying part of Canada the Dominion at the time um, running the fur trade the Métis people were also trading furs to the Hudson Bay Company who were controlling Rupert's Land. So in 1818, um, the North West Company um, had sort of claimed uh, Métis linkage, uh, almost sort of like they had announced that because of this business relationship and kinship with Métis people, um, it's it's sort of like they were saying the Métis people were ours. That was sort of the the take I had of how the Northwest Company was 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 framing its relationship with Métis people. The Hudson Bay Company wanted to get control of Métis hunting and trade so that the, the commerce of the Métis people, the provisioning of the forts, were strictly to Hudson Bay Company forts, and they wouldn't do business with the Northwest Company anymore. So in the early 1800s, the Northwest Company and the Hudson Bay Company were in conflict with each other, and in 1820, the Hudson Bay Company and the Northwest Company finally settled this conflict through a merger. And it was around this time that the Métis people established the Red River Settlement in Manitoba and that colony began to grow. In 1830, the Hudson Bay Company had, was claiming governance over the Red River Settlement. Um, they, were, they were saying that they were the governing body, they were governing the Red River Settlement and the Métis people through a company-appointed council called the Council of Assiniboia. In, in and around the decade between 1840 and 1850, the Métis people started to challenge the Hudson Bay Company's monopoly on the fur trade. And through those various challenges, the Métis people ended up bringing about an end to the Hudson Bay's monopoly on the fur trade, and Canada entered into the era of free trade in the fur industry. In 1869, the Hudson Bay Company and the Dominion of Canada were entering into an agreement to transfer control of Rupert's Land to the Canadian government. And when those discussions started to happen, the questions of Aboriginal title to the land and that these European bodies were transferring land 
without the consent of Aboriginal peoples um, started to arise, 1869. <clears throat> Around that time, 1869, there started to be a tremendous amount of unrest in Aboriginal communities and Métis communities in Eastern Canada. And there was a number of, of historic events where there was resistance, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what you call them, like, like incidents, resistant, incidents of resistance uh, were starting to crop up. Around 1870, when more troops started to arrive and more settlers were developing in the Dominion, uh, troops and settlers were very hostile towards the Métis people. In 1885, all of this um, dissension, hostility, and, and questions about transferring titles of land to the Dominion of Canada without Aboriginal consent came to a head. And that's 1885 is the year of the infamous Northwest Resistance or the North, Northwest Rebellion, um, whose leader of the rebellion, Métis leader Louis Riel, um, was captured or he surrendered and was tried and executed uh, by the government. Uh, he was hung till he was dead, as were seven other Indigenous um, uh, leaders of the Northwest Rebellion. Um, and they were tried and convicted of treason, um, the rebellion against the Canadian government. During the period of 1885 to the mid-1900s, the Métis people lived in states of poverty. Um, communities uh, were living in uh, states of demoralization, and they were dealing with a tremendous amount of racism because of their um, mixed ancestry. During that period, there was uh, what they called an exodus of Métis people from Manitoba, out of Manitoba to Saskatchewan, uh, as these fights over who had title to the land um, continued to happen in, in Manitoba and Ontario and, and uh, Eastern Canada. In the 1930s, uh, Métis people had um, moved quite a bit westward and north, and the Métis Federation of Alberta uh, at that time had, had sort of made a declaration that um, people of any Indigenous ancestry could be part of the Métis Federation of Alberta. There was the famous Ewing Commission in 1934, which was a commission that was designed to investigate and make recommendations to the government of Alberta on the status of Métis people in Alberta for the purposes of uh, lawmaking. Into the 1960s, uh, there was an era of tremendous political activity of the Métis peoples in Canada. Uh, that uh, political activism intensified. That's when the Métis, uh, the Manitoba Métis Federation uh, was established and developed. The Louis Riel Association of British Columbia was formed and began to grow. Uh, and there was still a tremendous amount of 
uh, federal policy being developed in Canada that were excluding Métis peoples as well as non-status Indians. And I use the term Indian not in the derogatory sense today that it means, but it is still a legal word in the Canadian Federal Indian Act. In 1970, um, Métis people and non-status uh, Indians in the various provinces, Prairie provinces, began to work independently of the federal government with the provincial governments and they were able to establish um, social, social services for Métis and non-status uh, in the various provinces that was making the federal government uncomfortable, uh, that they were working outside of uh, the federal policy arena and developing um, programs through the province, the provincial governments. In 1982, when Canada um, brought its constitution home to Canada, um, away from um, England, this is when Section 35 rights uh, were uh, enshrined in Canada's Constitution. So Canada's Constitution recognized and affirmed um, various rights for First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples of Canada. Jumping up to 1993, so so section 35 is what we currently refer to now as the section of the constitution that gives harvesting hunting and fishing and trapping rights to um first nations metis and inuit peoples of canada it's a constitutional right section 35 rights it's obviously often referred to that a section 35 hunter or a section 35 hunting rights but back in 1982 the Constitution recognized those three Aboriginal groups, but the right their rights were not well defined. So it's typical what happens in law, and then the challenges to those definitions come. So a little over 10 years after the Constitution of Canada was um, um, finalized, in 1993, two Métis men in Ontario who were claiming to exercise Section 35 hunting rights were charged um, in Ontario and this led to a famous court case in Canada, a Supreme Court uh, decision called the Pauli decision, uh, which actually came 10 years later in 2003. So the Pauli decision, uh, Supreme Court of Canada decision affirmed the identity of Métis people and affirmed their Section 35 constitutional rights to hunt. And the Pauli decision brought in what was called the Pauli test. And it was three criteria that a person had to meet as a Métis person to be able to claim Section 35 collective hunting rights. So an individual must identify as a Métis person, be accepted, be an accepted member of a present-day Métis community in Canada, and they must have ties to the historic Métis 
community, primarily as I understand that to be ties that go back to kinship uh, that established in the Red River Settlement. In 2016, um, a Supreme Court um, decision in Canada declared that the Métis people, so there was still controversy after the Pauli decision in 2003 of what, what constitutional rights Métis had. So in 2016, there was another uh, Supreme Court decision that's, that declared, uh, reaffirmed Métis' constitutional rights in Canada and that they have standing in federal government uh, constitutional law. In 2019, uh, the Métis nations, uh, Alberta, Ontario, and Saskatchewan developed an agreement with the government of Canada to be able to exercise self-government. So this was just an agreement. Now, jump forward to this month, beginning of July 2023. The Assembly of First Nations at their annual gem General Assembly in Halifax on July 13th unanimously voted in favor of a, of, of a resolution demanding that the federal government kill Bill C-53, which is a proposed federal bill on the table right now that would give the Métis Nations in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario the right to self-government. So in 2023, the Assembly of First Nations does not want Métis people of Canada to be able to self-govern. Now, in June of 2023, so just prior to the Assembly of First Nations um, denouncing the bill that would give the Métis Nations uh, self-government, the Manitoba Métis Federation issued a written statement um, about its Section 35 hunting rights in Canada. And the Métis people of Canada have harvesting rights um, that apply to the Métis homelands, uh, to the homeland, which is Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, parts of the Northwest Territories, northeastern BC and a small portion of the US just below the Canadian Prairie Provinces border. So the Manitoba um, Métis Federation said that they, under their Métis Harvesting Initiative, that Métis harvesters can harvest anywhere in the Métis homeland in Canada. So they're saying Métis harvesters can harvest game animals, so hunt big game animals. Um, they refer to it as harvesting uh, because it applies also to uh, fish and uh, small game as well. So the Manitoba uh, Métis Federation is asserting that licensed Métis harvesters can hunt in the Métis homeland anywhere in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, the portion of the Northwest Territories, a portion of British Columbia, and the U.S. What they are saying is Canadian Métis people cannot go to the U.S. and hunt, but Métis people from the U.S. can come to Canada and hunt 
in the Métis homeland. So under the Métis, the Manitoba Métis Federation's Métis Harvesting Initiative, um, they're also proposing or asserting that the um, Métis harvesters can in Manitoba can now harvest outside of what's called the Métis Natural Resource Harvesting Zone. So it is an area, I think it covers about a third of Manitoba, which has been designated as the area that Métis hunters are allowed to hunt big game in. Uh, the, under this announcement in June, the Manitoba Métis Federation is saying that they are expanding the, the zone north of the Métis Natural Resource Harvesting Zone right up to the Hudson Bay, the coast of Hudson Bay. So any Métis harvesters are allowed to hunt in northern Manitoba right up to the Hudson Bay, which is outside of what was currently set as Métis harvesting lands in Manitoba. The Métis, the Manitoba Métis Federation has also stated on its website and in its recent announcement in June that Métis harvesters that are going, coming into Manitoba or Manitoba harvesters, Métis harvesters who are, who are going outside the harvesting zone in Manitoba or outside of Manitoba to the other parts of their homeland to hunt are at risk of being charged in those other jurisdictions and having property and game animals seized. So they are warning the Métis harvesters so this is, this is asserting what they believe to be, and this is my interpretation, that the Métis Federation, Manitoba Métis Federation, is asserting what it believes to be its Section 35 rights, which is to hunt anywhere in the Métis homeland in Canada, uh, and for U.S. Métis people to come to anywhere in Canada in the homeland and hunt. But they're recognizing that the provincial governments do not see this as being a lawful interpretation of Section 35 rights. And so they're warning their harvesters that they can be potentially run into confrontation situations where they're charged uh, and personal property seized. So <clears throat> I did also did a little bit of research about the Manitoba Métis Federation's Métis Harvesting Initiative. So in order to, so this is kind of interesting. So, so the, the Métis are saying that the rights, the Section 35 rights to hunt in the homeland is not an individual Métis person's right. It is a collective, collective right that's given to the Métis peoples of Canada. So in order to, so it's not an individual right, it's a collective right, uh, but in order to be able to hunt under the Métis harvested, Harvesting Initiative, the Métis people themselves, uh, and in this case the Métis, the Manitoba Métis Federation, uh, establish rules um, that define what a Métis harvester is in order to come to Manitoba or to go to the other places of the homeland and hunt. So the rules are that um, the Métis harvesters have to follow Canadian laws to do with public safety. 
They have to follow the laws, um, the harvesting laws that are in their um, Métis laws of harvesting third edition. So it's essentially the Métis hunting regulations for uh, the homeland. They have to possess a Manitoba Métis Federation's harvester's card. So essentially a Métis a Manitoba Métis Federation issued hunting license, uh, like what I would buy in British Columbia, a BC hunting license. They all That license also has to have a current conservation trust fund sticker. Um, so a, uh, a conservation uh, levy, I think, is applied on, the, on, the, on their harvester's card. They need to purchase big game tags um, and they can apply for uh, special lottery type permits um, like I can as a licensed hunter in British Columbia. There was quite a bit of controversy in Manitoba about whether Section 35 rights allowed Métis people to hunt on private land without permission of the private landowner. Now the Manitoba Métis Federation is saying that Métis harvesters have to have a form, a permission form that's issued by the Manitoba Métis Federation um, consented to the private landowner. It has to be in writing. The permission has to be granted in writing on a uh, Métis Federation form. If a holder of a Manitoba Métis Federation harvester card is going to hunt on private land, their laws say they have to have that written permission form. And in order to get your current harvester's card and your conservation trust fund, a Métis person has to complete a mandatory harvesting survey from the previous year. I think it's the harvesting f what was harvested in the previous year, and I believe when I looked at it, it was also declaring what your harvesting needs were for the upcoming year, uh, which would then roll into the request for purchasing uh, their big game tags or being allotted the big game tags would be based <clears throat> on a harvesting need. So that's a lot to digest. <clears throat> I, I, I get it. So I, I wanted to tell the story of the history of Métis people in Canada and goes back 500 and plus years uh, when the Métis peoples themselves first started to evolve and settle through to the various conflicts to a rebellion and an execution of their leader and, and uh, constitutional rights to hunt this dissension between the Métis federations in Canada and the First Nation governments of Canada, not my interpretation, not seeing eye to eye. Uh, the First Nations are not wanting the Métis people to be able to have federal authorized self-government rights. So this, this, is, this is a complex story <clears throat> that, that leads right down to uh, where Métis people can assert their hunting rights in the country. So the Manitoba Métis Federation has stepped out and said Métis people can hunt in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Northwest Territories, parts of BC, and U.S. Métis people that meet the requirements 
of the Métis Harvesting Initiative to do with the licensing and tags and all that stuff that I talked about could come and hunt anywhere in the homeland in Canada. So this is hugely controversial, obviously, <clears throat> but it comes, it's a culmination of 500 years of history in Canada. And that's why I wanted to tell that story to you to give you a, a, a brief recap on Canadian history. Uh, it was a huge learning experience for me as well <clears throat> to probably to learn something uh, as an adult Canadian that I probably should have known uh, better <clears throat> without having to research it. But um, I did, uh, took the initiative and, and I just wanted to pass that on to you as well to understand this history of where this is at. Because this isn't just a, <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, asserting hunting rights in various parts of Canada and there's like no context to it. So the story is the context. Now, like I said, this is a controversial decision, a controversial announcement. <clears throat> there's no decision. The Manitoba Métis Federation are pushing the bounds of the interpretation of the Canadian Constitution, Section 35 rights. And they're pushing, this is my interpretation, they're pushing the bounds of constitutional law to possibly get in front of a Supreme Court judge to see if those Section 35 rights apply to the Métis homeland of Canada. So all of those various prairie provinces uh, and <clears throat> parts of BC and the Northwest Territory. So I think that's what this is about. Now, this is a controversial announcement with the Manitoba Wildlife Federation. Um, I will <clears throat> read what their statement has been on this to date. So the Manitoba Wildlife Federation wants to bring to your immediate attention a letter recently issued by the Manitoba Métis Federation to Métis harvesters, proposing a significant expansion of the Métis natural resource harvesting zone to include all the prairie provinces, parts of the Northwest Territories, Ontario, and the United States. Among other things, the Manitoba Métis Federation proposes to grant Métis residents living anywhere within the va this vast area the right to hunt in Manitoba without regard to provincial angling and hunting laws, including harvesting limits established for conservation purposes. The statement from the Manitoba Wildlife Federation goes on to say the Manitoba Wildlife Federation has long expressed its concerns with respect to the lack of provincial regulation of the existing natural resource harvesting zone, which encompasses approximately the southern third of Manitoba. As an example, the Manitoba Métis Federation has unilaterally declared a moose hunt within areas close to moose harvesting for conservation reasons. Before any expansion of the existing natural resource harvesting zone is contemplated, the Manitoba Wildlife Federation urges the province to develop a shared management regime to ensure that all harvest of our precious natural resources, indigenous and licensed, is practiced in a safe and sustainable manner. The protection of the natural resources for future generations of Manitoba should be a priority of all involved. So that was the statement of the Manitoba Wildlife Federation. <clears throat> this story um, is one of many that is the forefront 
in the minds of many hunters uh, in Canada, coast to coast, that I hear from, that reach out to me, concerns. And it's, it's a story, it's a theme that's echoed through many stories that I've covered on the Round Canada podcast in both fishing and, as well as hunting. And it's this story of how to bring together Section 35 hunters in Canada, those that have the constitutional right to hunt, and licensed hunters, so non-Indigenous licensed hunters in this country. How do you bring those two groups of people together to properly account for all the big game animals that are harvested in the various management zones across the country to ensure that all hunting is sustainable and not impacting the resource or unduly impacting the hunting opportunity of constitutional or licensed hunters in this country. So, so this is a story, like I said, a thread that I hear very often in stories across the country. Um, licensed hunters telling me, how do we know the game animals are being properly managed and that hunting is sustainable if we don't know what the Section 35 hunters are taking? I've seen bits and pieces of how hunting allocation decisions are made in parts of Canada and wildlife managers in issuing or developing hunting regulations for licensed hunters. They don't know, to the best of my knowledge, they do not know how many animals um, Section 35 hunters have taken in the previous uh, year. What I've seen is they get an understanding of the population and demographic of Indigenous peoples in their management areas. And then there's assumptions made <clears throat> of the amount of wild game that would be needed for a, an Indigenous community of X people and X demographic. And they simply account for that in the total harvesting plan of, say, moose, you know, that... Um, Biologists might say, hey, the 5,000 moose are sustainable in this area. Our estimates are is that indigenous communities are going to need about 3,000 moose. Um, so that would leave 2,000 moose available for licensed hunters. And then they would try to manage the licensed hunting based on that. I don't know if that happens for all species everywhere in all jurisdictions of the country. I've seen a couple examples of that and how the unreported um, constitutional hunters harvesting potential has been incorporated into a hunting decision for licensed hunters. This is my general read uh, across the country. Indigenous peoples who have rights to hunt under the Canadian Constitution don't trust governments. And so they do not want to disclose um, what they're hunting, how much they're harvesting, when, where, that sort of thing, for fear of that being taken away. That's been the history of 
Aboriginal people in Canada is when they've collaborated with the government, <clears throat> they've come out of it losing in some way, shape, or form. So there's this level of mistrust. Um, I believe there's a level of mistrust between Indigenous peoples in this country and the governments of the provinces and territories and the federal government in uh, disclosing too much information about what uh, Section 35 hunting <clears throat> is, is taking place. There's a tremendous amount of racism happening in this country <clears throat> um, in hunting that goes both ways um, towards non-Indigenous hunters and, and towards Indigenous hunters. It's a two-way avenue. I've seen both. Um, been subject to a little bit of it myself now and again. Uh, others have written me and have told me stories <clears throat> that literally keep me awake at night. Uh, I fear for people's lives <laughs> in the outdoors, hunting in parts of British Columbia from things that I've heard that <clears throat> stories that I've heard that come back to this pervasive racist attitude that still exists. Like I said, it's a two-way street in segments of both communities, both groups, um, licensed and unlicensed hunters in this country. So this, this broader question about <clears throat> how do we ensure that wildlife are being managed properly and that hunting is sustainable, meaning that it's not detrimental to wildlife abundance, when we don't know what a portion of the big game hunters are taking each year. I don't have the answer to this. I, I, I simply don't know. Um, I know and I interpret that we have this huge level of mistrust for Section 35 hunters to come to the table and be very explicit in sharing harvesting data. And we've got this tremendous level of um, um, dissension and conflict and racist attitudes that are happening on the ground, on logging roads between parties that are hunting in the outdoors. So I don't know what the solutions are to those. I know from a conservation perspective, I think everybody across the board wants wildlife first. Hear that all the time. Everybody across all segments of the hunting community in the country say the resource comes first, wildlife come first. Uh, we want to ensure that that's sustainable. But in order to make that happen uh, in some way, shape, or form, uh, there has to be a melding of these two massive hunting communities. <clears throat> I do believe, I've seen some numbers, that licensed hunters, non-Indigenous hunters, way outnumber Indigenous hunters in this country. So I believe, you know, the claims about <clears throat> Indigenous people over-harvesting um, is is potentially not founded because they're outnumbered by licensed uh, non-Indigenous hunters by 
you know, two to one, five to one. I don't know exactly what the number is, but I think there's like, uh, <clears throat> you know, millions of licensed hunters across Canada. And oh God, I think I'm just trying to remember it was like 500,000 or something like that. I, I, I kind of dug into these numbers about a year ago. <clears throat> so don't quote me exactly on those, but um, I think, I think it's safe to say that, um, you know, Section 35 hunters are not the majority of the hunting community across Canada. Uh, maybe regionally they are. But we've got this this bigger issue of collectively bringing everybody's harvesting needs and harvesting impacts on the resource to the table for shared decision making in the allocation of hunting uh, is is the way things are going. So how this is going to happen, like I said, I don't know. Um, I don't have the answer to this. I just know in my heart that we need to get to a place in Canada um, where we can care for wildlife. We can put the best interest of wildlife for the benefit of all hunters uh, first. And we do need to know what everybody's needs are, what everybody's taking from uh, the land, how we can overcome 500 and almost 25 years of history in this country that has not gone in a positive direction uh, to land us where we are today in the relationships between Section 35 hunters and governments and Section 35 and not unlicensed hunters in this country. Um, it's it's been it's been a lot of Canada's history that's got us to here today. Uh, and like I said, I don't think it's an easy fix. I don't know how it can be fixed. I just hope the conversations are happening. And I've opened myself up here, you know, in talking about this, but. Um, you know, I believe we have to get to a place in Canada where it's the best for everybody. And I want this country to be a model of Indigenous rights when it comes to hunting and licensed hunting rights to be a model that the world would look to uh, as the best model of wildlife conservation and the best model for food security for hunters across this country and any family regardless of your heritage so send me your thoughts uh, email me message me what what you think about this what you know I know it maybe it's a little unsettling to reach the end of around Canada podcast and <clears throat> kind of say I don't have the answer I don't have an answer to a lot of these things I have thoughts about them but this one is big um, this is a really big big issue that's embedded uh, in the history of this country and the Métis people are currently um, intensifying what they believe to be their rights to hunt across the homeland in Canada. They're willing to risk putting themselves in conflict with laws in the province in order for judges in the Supreme Courts of the of this country to make a decision. Um, that's a pretty gutsy thing to do, but it's that important to the Métis people uh, and their culture. Challenging subject. So this was a different format for the Round Canada podcast. Hopefully you appreciated. 
uh, the history lesson uh, and an understanding of this new Métis harvesting initiative coming from the Manitoba Métis Federation and the concerns being expressed by the Manitoba Wildlife Federation. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we'll see you in the next episode.